Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. On the show today, we have Donald Monroe, a local arts and music reporter who worked for the Fresno Bee for 25 years, covering arts and culture in our city of Fresno. He now runs his own website called The Monroe Review, where he's continued his work independently. In this podcast, we cover the local music scene, theater, art criticism, book recommendations, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Donald Monroe. Fresno's best. All right, uh, Donald, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Well, I, I first of all have to say that I am not a foodie. I uh, am perfectly content to go to um, say Don Pepe's. <laughs> in fact, that's one of my favorite places. I love the spicy shrimp burrito. I just think I could eat it like every other day. <laughs> I just love it. Um, I also love the the chicken burritos at uh, El Premio Mayor. I think uh, when I am in that part of town, I try to, to stop there and pick one of those up. Uh, I really like the salsa at Antonio's Mexican restaurant in the Barnes and Noble shopping center. It's funny how one particular item on a menu or even a condiment will sometimes just sort of call out to your taste buds and I'll think that's where I want to go. I want to have Antonio's salsa. Uh, and I guess my, my last choice would be a Phoenician garden. I love Mediterranean food. I have this kind of ongoing quest to uh, commune with the best fatouche salad. I'm a pretty, pretty big hard critic when it comes to fatouche salad. Other food is, I, I don't have much uh, critical discernment there, but a fatouche salad, I uh, will drive a long ways to, to get a good one. You know, you're the second person to mention uh, Phoenician Garden and fatouche salad. The other person was DJ Kreiner. You mentioned that specifically. Um, really? And so I, and, and I'm embarrassed I have not had a fatouche salad. Um, so why, you know, what is it about that salad that caused you to migrate? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, um, they, they use, it's lettuce, uh, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember quite what's in it. I think it's tumac. Does that sound right? T-U-M-A-C. Um, it's got kind of a bite to it. They put pita chips in it as well. And so it's sort of um, a contrast in flavors. I have to say that the fatouche salad at Phoenician is not quite as good as it used to be. I don't know what happened. I think there might've been a change in ownership or something like that. Um, but it's amazing what like one little tiny adjustment of an ingredient will do. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned it twice now, these kind of like fine details and, you know, with, 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 uh, you know, I've watched enough cooking shows to, you know, to know about this, you know, the mise en place and like these ideas about, you know, being really intentional with how you're preparing food. And I think that comes out and, you know, it can come out in presentation, can come out in, in the salsa that you have, you know, there's nothing worse. You know, I've gone to my share of taco bars in LA when I lived down there. Um, and there's nothing worse than a shitty salsa bar uh, because you just, you, you get a sense of what's coming after. Like if, 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 if there is not fresh pico de gallo, uh, how fresh is my burrito? It's like this. Exactly. It's like I teach, uh, I teach in Chowchilla. I'm a school teacher and um, <laughs> There's a there's a burrito spot we go to every week, and um, they've had a sign. Um, I won't name name the place, but they've had a sign uh, right next to the register says uh, "Fresh Fish Today," and the sign's been out since uh, you know mid April. So, um, you know, you just you wonder things. So I agree with you. I think those fine details do matter, and it's symptomatic or symptomatic of you know what's to come. So I I agree, and I you know I I. I've been to Don Pepe's, but I haven't been to the second one. So I'm, a, you know, I've, I've been saying this for a while. I, I think someone really just needs to get out there and catalog because there's so many, there's so many great Mexican food restaurants in town. 
And I wish I had a, I wish, I mean, Yelp is helpful in some ways in that it's not helpful. Um, and uh, I just wish I, you know, I, I need to push, because I feel like we all have this habit where we find the Mexican spot that we like and then we stick with it. You know, we just, we get wedded to this Mexican uh, place that just does it the right way. And I, and I have that same issue, but I would love to try and expand because, you know, Casa Corona is, is, I, I enjoy their food, but like I need, I need the, I need to experience other places. And then a lot of these places are small businesses too, you know? So and they change and you never know what is going on behind the scenes. But yeah, I agree with you that uh, you almost develop a taste for a particular restaurant and you're just drawn to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you follow Mike Casagueta um, or if you're familiar with his his taco expertise, but he's, and he's definitely a taco guy. And I am more of a burrito guy. Wow. And so I do, I, I have followed Mike around. We used to, you know, we used to work together at the V. And so we would go out and he would show, he would take us to these various restaurants, but his major thing is like, he specializes <laughs> in the tacos and I'm just, I just love burritos. So, okay. Maybe. Well, then the follow up to that will be, is obvious, right? Is uh, do you prefer wet or dry? Oh, for my burritos, I prefer, I prefer wet. I, I love a, a, a not a mushy burrito, but you know, just like kind of full of flavor and juiciness is not the right word to use when talking about a burrito, but it kind of is in a way, I think. So, yeah, yeah that's yeah, pretty good. I think Chipotle, you know, kind of destroyed the burrito in a lot of ways. You know, it, it, it's, you know, as a kid, you know, going to Chipotle, it was, you know, it, you're getting a good burrito, but it's not really a Mexican burrito necessarily. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I like the element of the fresh ingredients, but um, there's just so many burritos I haven't eaten. So I spent most of my childhood going to Chipotle and then, uh, when I went away to college and moved to San Francisco, I had El Farlito, which is which is known as the as the burrito spot. And I just, you know, it's like a conversion experience. I didn't know what I was missing until I had the light shown to me on the road to wherever <laughs> Paul was, where Paul was going. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I I don't eat enough burritos, and I don't eat enough uh, diverse burritos either. So I, I, uh, this is my challenge for this week is to is to get a burrito a place I've never eaten before. Um, so I, um, when I moved here, uh, I had a lot of questions, um, about Fresno. Um, and for me, uh, arts and classical music are something that, you know, for my age I'm, I'm into, but maybe I don't share, uh, all that much, um, how obsessed I am with classical music and, uh, you know, fine art and stuff. And I, I kind of had this acceptance that, you know, that that part of my, you know, my part of my life was not going to be as fulfilling, leaving some of the bigger cities that I'd lived in. And, you know, deep down, I knew that was bullshit. I mean, I know that every city has art and culture and music in different ways. Um, but I still had that fear. Um, but I am curious to hear you talk about um, the music, the classical music scene and the art scene in Fresno and how that culture um, has changed over the years um, because you've been covering this for a long time. And so I'm, I'm just really curious to kind of hear a little bit of the, you know, somewhat recent history of okay. Okay. classical culture and then, uh, you know, art culture in Fresno. And I know that that's like saying summarize a city in a lot of ways, which I'm, I don't want you to do necessarily, but just from your vantage point, um, where have things started when you began and where have they gone? So I would say the first rule or the first observation would be that things go in cycles. Uh, there are times, particularly in a medium-sized city like Fresno, that you can just seem like you're awash in riches, you know, in terms of uh, offerings of classical music and theater and visual arts, that kind of thing. And then there are times uh, just depending on really market conditions um, or just the circumstances of the musicians themselves. Like you might have a group of musicians who get together and have a chamber group 
and do some great stuff for three years and then they all get jobs somewhere and leave for, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of transition there. Uh, the, 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 the pillar of the scene, of course, is the Fresno Philharmonic. And uh, I often will tell people, go and experience the Fresno Philharmonic because it's, it's the jewel. It's, it is something for which Fresno should be proud. It's a very, very good regional orchestra. Uh, and it has gone through cycles itself. Uh, there, there have been times over the past 15, 20 years that they had uh, played two masterworks concerts for, or two performances of each masterworks concert, had an expanded pop series, played for free out at Woodward Park, you know, had, had a lot going on. Um, they've had to retrench in some years, and they went through a period, of course, in 2008 to 2012, where everyone was really retrenching and going through um, a lot of economic pain, and they really had to cut back on stuff. But we have had a, a history, a tradition of really fine conductors. Uh, Ted Kuchar, who conducted it for many years uh, before our current conductor, Ray Hitoda, uh, he's a world-class conductor. He's got he had an orchestra in Venezuela until that country pretty much fell apart. Um, but he uh, had uh, lots of guest conducting gigs all over the world. Uh, lots of recordings um, was was very, is is very well known in the in the conducting world. And Ray Hatoda, who took over, I guess this would be her. Well, this would have been her third season her fourth season now I can't remember time mashes together um, she's definitely an up-and-coming conductor uh, great personality great rapport with music musicians great sort of personal connection with the audience so some some really fine like world-class stuff happens on the stage at Fresno Philharmonic they bring in um, the top in terms of, of guest artists. And one of the reasons that Fresno has already always benefited from a great orchestra is just its location. So it's halfway between San Francisco and LA, it's the old story. And, and classical musicians really have to scrape out a living. So there are quite a few Fresno Philharmonic musicians who also play in uh, the Sacramento Symphony, the San Jose, uh, uh, not the LA Phil, because that's a full-time orchestra, but uh, LA Chamber, you know, these these other groups, and they kind of cobble together a living. They call them the Freeway Philharmonic, actually, is, is one of the nicknames. And so that's one reason why the quality of the music is, is really, really high, is because it has some really great players, along with some great players who live here and who are, who are longtime veterans. Now, once you get past the Philharmonic, uh, that's where things start to kind of ebb and flow more. Um, and that's when, that's where you have some great chamber groups that will start up and be there for a few years and then they'll kind of die away. Uh, the other, I guess, three organizations of note would be, one would be keyboard concerts. Uh, which is at Fresno State, the Philip Lorenz International Keyboard Concerts Series. And that again is uh, a series that features players that might last week have been playing at Carnegie Hall or at Zellerbrock Hall or at, you know, the, the finest venues in the country and the world. And that's just sort of the way the classical piano world works is some of these artists will go from very very big cities to smaller cities it's all kind of uh, part of the traditional tour route that they take um, so in terms of orchestral movement music in terms of solo piano president really ranks up there um, so some of the other offerings in terms of chamber music probably not quite as exciting as um, 
some of the major cities. But again, it kind of depends on what time in the in the where you are in the timeline. Well, and you know, I had a lot of thoughts when you were talking, and one of them, I just read this really fascinating article that was talking about how, because uh, you were mentioning uh, the conductor, the Fresno Phil, about how conductors are one of the few professions where um, they age like wine, and so <laughs> the older they get, the the you know they 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 improve um, as they as they near retirement. Um, and then I forget the name of the conductor that was mentioned in the article, but this person is pushing 90 and is uh, going to be conducting, I think in Vienna is what it said. Um, so I, you know, I am, um, I also am curious about though the, the art and theater scene as well. Um, you know, I know that the, the art scene in Fresno is very dynamic. And so maybe, maybe that's something that we can save for later because I, I, I know that, you know, that art is something um, that the, the kind of, the, it can adapt to its environment. Um, but what about uh, theater in Fresno? I know that there's a few different theaters in town, but uh, how has that scene changed over time? Yeah, and that's even more extreme than classical music. Uh, there will be times that it seems like, wow, we have three new theater companies that form. Uh, of course, we have to preface all of this with saying that everybody's been dark for six months now and it's just craziness. Um, but even before that, yeah, the, we had, we had several um, theater companies close. The most important of which was Stageworks Fresno, which was the closest thing we had to um, bringing in equity actors uh, at, for, for guests as guest artists, um, really high quality of work. Uh, what we have, what we have, what the, 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 our, our tried and true that they've always been here for almost 50 years, good company players, uh, is still a place that you can go and see some really, really great theater. Uh, people sometimes laugh and who haven't been there. And when I tell them that and they say, oh, well, it's dinner theater. It's like, yeah, but there's different like levels of dinner theater. And when I start naming off all the Broadway stars who started at, at Roger Rockas, then they start to realize, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe um, there's some real quality there. But unfortunately, we've lost some of our, yeah, our smaller theater companies. Either, either they kind of go dormant, um, haven't done anything for a while, uh, don't have a regular season, uh, don't have a, a, a standard venue that is theirs and so it's pretty grim right now i would say that uh, fresno has a an unimpressive theater scene unfortunately compared to other cities its size now i will throw in the selma art center which is kind of our 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 biggest success story in the last five or six years uh there are sometimes that a theater company just kind of has its moment in the sun and Selma um, in the last couple of years has really brought together really talented theater folks, both on stage and backstage and they've done some really fine shows. Um, so I've, I was always very happy to see that. But um, beyond Selma and beyond Good Company, the pickings are pretty slim. And of course we have our university college and our college, city college offerings. So I'm hoping that it can improve and you always hope that there are some people out there scrap that are gonna start another scrappy theater company. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging uh, in a lot of ways. You know, you kind of, you need that kind of steady uh, theater consumer base that's going to show up and be a se season ticket holder or whatever they are, you know, be a consistent uh, contributor. Um, and I know, I, I mean, when I've talked to people, I've heard a lot about, you know, different schools, whether it's Fresno State or even high school uh, theater programs that are really great. But it, it feels weird to me to have really successful high school theater programs and maybe somewhat successful university programs, but then there's not a, uh, uh, you know, 
adult professional program. So what, what is that? Is that, why is there that disconnect between educational institutions and then professional programs? I think you can sum up, up that answer pretty quickly. Uh, we don't have major corporate support of theater, of, non, of nonprofit theater in this area for whatever reason. Uh, the Philharmonic has some good support from, from local companies, but um, they just don't donate uh, to theater like they donate to theater, say, in the Bay Area. Okay. And, uh, and part of that, too, is that we don't have really many or any corporate headquarters here. Because when you've, got the, when you've got the corporate executives living in a particular city, they're obviously going to push more for improving their cultural uh, quality rather than maybe another part of the state or the country that doesn't have quite, a, quite as many resources. So I think that's, that's really the major thing of what, of what did Stageworks Fresno in. Um, the, the artistic director, Joel Abels, he worked so hard and had such a passionate group of people working with him. And he just couldn't get it to that next level in terms of financial support, I think. If you are a successful uh, fruit packaging company or an almond farmer that's making good money selling nuts to China, donate to your theater company. If you're listening to this right now, donate to your theater company. That, that, that could be, that could, I mean, it's, it's, it's about a, a heartwarming of a contribution as you could make. Um, so that's, that's, my, that's my petition. I don't know if there's any successful packaging or all. Oh, there, there's, there, is, there is a lot of money out there. Yeah, you, we could spend the rest of this podcast just talking about funding the arts. And when you start talking about how much money goes to the Fresno State football program, for example, um, and you compare that to the local arts scene, you start to think, okay, well, that's where some of that money is going to you and you then you look at our local philanthropic organizations which are are very interested in trying to help people who say don't have enough to eat and you can, I can totally get that that's a very <laughs> important thing to be worrying about the thing that bothers me most about funding for the arts is that there's such a disconnect between how much money there is in the bay area and los angeles compared to the Central Valley. And you start looking at the lists of even grants that come from the NEA, uh, the State Arts Council. Um, I think that they're so heavily weighted toward the Bay Area and, and LA that it just, it, it's like it's two different countries. And I would like to see some more you know, equity there. I mean, heck, we're producing their food, I guess you could say. So, well, and, and you know, like you said, like they've got all these corporate sponsors in these large cities. Like, clearly, we're in need of that money more than San Francisco is. I mean, I when I lived there, I would regularly go to concerts. I'd go to the Opera House. Man, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think they need any more public grants. I mean, they might, you know, it's probably expensive to run everything. I have no doubt. Oh yeah. And it's, very, yeah, to, to run opera and you need, you need those really, really wealthy donors. But I always think one of those wealthy donors could probably give the same amount and actually fund a theater company here in Fresno on their own. And wouldn't that be kind of special? Yeah, you could, you could, yeah. I mean, you know, you could fund, uh, 1% of the Fresno Opera Company, or you can fund an entire city. Uh, you know, so, okay, so this is my second petition. If there are any tech billionaires listening, right. uh, you know, you, you, uh, call Donald and he'll redirect you. Or if we could just funnel the billions of dollars being spent right now on political ads and, and divert that money, you know, that's another place too. So. Yeah, if I but again, to, we, could go, uh, we yeah. could go off on that. If I have to listen to another Valadeo or TJ Cox ad ever again, I'm going to lose my mind. 
I can't wait for November, whatever it is when this is all done. Um, I want to switch gears for a second and talk about young people in classical music. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm a young person that likes classical music, but, uh, you know, quote unquote young. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I will say that it's not something that people my generation are typically listening to, which I'm within that millennial category. Um, and I, I've read a, I read a CNN article recently that said that classical music is both dying and that was uh, in some ways a good thing. You know, a lot of these kind of rules about how to behave during classical concerts and the venues that they're in, they kind of make it feel stilted and like, you know, kind of, I don't know if anemic is the right word, but like, you know, kind of droll, you know, just this kind of environment that's not open and not flexible and not really geared towards young people. So I guess I have two questions. Uh, one, um, why do you think uh, younger people don't listen to classical music? Uh, because they all love it when it's uh, transposed over an image of a dinosaur chasing someone in a blockbuster. Uh, they all like it then. Um, and then do you think that classical music is gonna kind of experience what's happening in jazz right now? In jazz right now, there's this amazing fusion going on uh, between jazz and hip hop that's really changing jazz in a lot of ways. A lot of the jazz that's being made in, in the UK, for example, and then a lot of the composers in the United States are really fusing some amazing things with jazz. And so do you think uh, classical music, in order to attract younger people, needs to kind of transform in some ways? Because I, I, I do listen to some classical crossover, quote unquote, uh, that's interesting to me. I just don't know, the, you know if, if that's working necessarily. There are a lot of reasons why younger people probably don't listen to classical music as much as older people. And let me tell you, every one of those reasons has been thrown out there, examined, debated, um, everything from the price of the tickets. It's expensive to get a seat to, to hear the orchestra uh, to the running time of the, of the, of the pieces. Uh, you can, easily have an hour-long symphony, which people speculate, oh, that's beyond the attention span of, of younger people, um, to the fact, to, to this idea that there isn't as strong of a, a narrative in classical music. Uh, and if there is, you probably need to have researched a little or know something about the piece. Um, and so there's less of something tangible to grab hold to, of grab hold of, uh, even, even when uh, music has lyrics, they're often in Latin or German or, you know, so, so there, there's kind of a barrier to entry there. Um, I think, and I, I don't know if there was, if there's ever been, or there would ever be a way of testing this, because unless you have a time machine, that if you went back to the 40s, if you went back to the 20s, to the 1870s, you would probably find fewer younger people at that time, that moment in time, interested in classical music. I think part of it is just a generational thing. And what's happened with every generation since then is that as people got older, they tended to get more interested in classical music. I, I still, I couldn't tell you exactly why that's the case, but I suspect it has to do with kind of the maturing of your tastes, of maybe your willingness to sit back and, and uh, listen to a longer piece. Uh, maybe you're more tired and you don't want to get up. Um, and also the fact that classical music has been very closely related to class, uh, particularly in this country. Uh, classical music was seen, is seen as something that, that wealthier people do, uh, more conservative people do, and that's where you often get into some of these rules of, of decorum and the concert hall. And so I think all of those, uh, all of these factors all contribute to it. Um, in terms of, of attracting or, or drawing younger audiences, classical music organizations have been really trying to do that, especially in the last 20 years. Um, one is through education. Now, almost every 
uh, Fresno Unified uh, student will go through a program in which they learn about classical music and they go hear the Philharmonic at a special concert, for example. Um, and of course, we know that that when you start some of those habits early, um, that can draw uh, that can draw interest. Um, another way that organizations are trying to reach that younger audience is to change the venue or change the, change the performance style. So um, I remember going in New York, uh, going to a place called Poussin Rouge, which is kind of a famous uh, music venue downtown that features lots of classical music and they set their quartet or whatever up on a stage. There are, um, there's, uh, there are cocktails, beer, you know, all, it, it's a much, much more informal atmosphere. So that appeals to some people. It, it's just more fun to go and drink and listen to music for, for a lot of people. Um, also taking the orchestra or the, or your, your quartet or whatever, and putting them outside in a public venue. Uh, it's a lot of fun to sit outside on the grass and listen to a rousing concert. So I think, I think organizations are trying to do, to, to reach these younger audiences and they're kind of desperate to do so. Um, moving on to your second question, the, the fusion thing is really interesting because of course you're talking about actually kind of two bodies of music. You're talking about, I mean, the whole definition of classical music is that it's old. So right. we, we play stuff that was written two or 300 or 400 years ago. We also have new classical music that's being written. But what you'll find is that it's particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, um, the new music that is being written is much more accessible, much more tuneful, um, much more hummable. All the things that kind of make music attractive to us than in the past 50 years. I mean, classical music, I will be the first to tell you, went through this period of awfulness. I mean, you start, I went, I went back one time and I started listening to the Pulitzer Prize winners from like the 1960s and 70s. And it's pretty tough to listen to. It's atonal, it's unrhythmic, it's intellectual. And uh, it did not connect with what I'm convinced are those kind of primal musical impulses that we all have in our brains. There's a reason why we react so strongly to music is because we're just hardwired for it. And so new classical music just wasn't doing that. And so there's been a complete turnaround. And yes, you can now listen to uh, lush new symphonies, um, fascinating new arrangements. And that's what, one thing that Ray Hatoda has been trying to do with the Philharmonic is playing one new contemporary piece for each concert, prepping the audience for it, letting them know what it's what they're going to hear, and then performing it. So I think the fusion part, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen in the same way. I think I think that there are examples of classical music fusing with jazz or with country music <laughs> and, and probably hip hop. But I don't see that being as important as um, serving a beer with your Beethoven. Yeah, so it's, it's more about, it's more about not, I don't wanna say peripheral, but it's about the, how the experience is had um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I when I've listened, because I, like you probably get my, what the new recordings are in classical music through Apple Music or whatever. Um, and for me, the crossover stuff is less interesting than the people just innovating generally. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I love and I'm obsessed with John Luther Adams and everything he does, you know, this kind of environmental ambient classical music that transports you somewhere. And I honestly think, for me at least, that that is the direction that classical music is going, that it's, it's something that's going to fill our environments. Um, but that's, a, you know, again, a whole different subject. And uh, if you have- I will, I will say too, that during the pandemic, I've been reading that, that classical music streaming 
and interest in orchestras has just skyrocketed. Partly it's because people have more time or maybe they're looking for something soothing or relaxing. Um, listening to a great piece of classical music can really calm you down. Yes. It's, a really, it's really relaxing. If you had a long day, I mean, just putting on the Goldberg variations can just really, uh, you know, bring, bring the, whatever the serotonin or whatever's been released in your brain that's got you amped from a crazy day of Zoom dropping out on you. Um, so I, you know, I mean, that's, I think music is what we want it to be ultimately. And, uh, but, you know, you, you aren't going to get those amazing uh, innovations and beautiful music without, you know, paying, watching people perform. Because I've, I've talked to musicians before on this pod about uh, streaming services and the complete lack of financial support uh, by a lot of these services for musicians. And so those public performances are the ways that they can continue to make music. Because if they, if those aren't there, then, then, you know, it, it's just not going to, stuff's not going to exist because there's just not this, you know, it'll be a part-time thing for some people. And you, you know, you don't get become ocean without John Luther just being in the woods at Alaska by himself for months. Um, so let's, I, I, I do want to add one really important part of this, which is, and you kind of brought this up, which is live performance. There is nothing like seeing an, or hearing an orchestra live being in that hall with them having that wall of sound um the same with a string quartet hearing it live um we have great sound reproduction in our lives um absolutely you know technically perfect but it can't make up for that feeling of being in the audience you feel i i, I like to say you can smell an audience <laughs> You, you can smell their sense of, of contentment, of their being bored. There's just something about us interacting in a group um, live. And so I think the more people that orchestras can entice to experience that liveness, that's what's going to help them uh, in the long run. You know, I love Sonos more than anybody, of course, but, you know, they're there's a difference between a bassoon coming through a Sono speaker and then a bassoon in the room with you. Mm. Um, and you, you just, I, I, I mean, I don't want to get into the, you know, the physics of this, but there's just something about this way the sound mm -hmm. envelops you uh, when you're in a full, when you're in a room with the acoustics balance on the walls that no matter how badass your Sono speaker, you're just not going to get it. Um, I want to talk about uh, streaming a little bit more um, and talk about um, what people have been doing in pandemic, which is watching Hamilton 4,000 times, um, you know, and it's, it's weird because the cult of Hamilton was around for a while. And then when Disney, you know, the monolith that destroys all things, I mean, the monolith that does good things uh, sometimes it picked up on it and basically brought us, brought it to us at home. Um, I, I have friends who have, uh, nine or 10 year olds that are having Hamilton themed birthday parties. Um, oh my you know, gosh. It's, it, it is, it is amazing how much uh, it has re-entered the consciousness. Um, and so I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think maybe theater or musicals needs that kind of entry point through uh, reproductions that are aired on streaming services to get people back into theaters? Or do you think it'll just become a replacement? Well, I, I think it goes back to what I was just saying about live performances. Um, that having that, re that reproduction, though, there are some advantages to that, that kind of a performance as well. I mean, when I watched Hamilton on Disney Plus compared to live on stage, I was able to understand the words better. Well, actually, I, I had the supertitles or the subtitles on. Um, I was able to track the story better um, just because I had an editor there who was directing my attention. And I, I think the story itself resonated more with me just because I was able to, to track it better. Now, on the other hand, 
I had an editor directing my attention, which meant I couldn't experience the theater, the stage as a whole. And sometimes that's what you want to do is you, is you don't want to focus on a certain performer. You want that wide shot. And I like to be able to determine, I want to be my own editor when I'm going to do the close up, when I'm going to do the wide shot. But I do think that all of those kids who are having Hamilton birthday parties, they're going to want to see Hamilton live when it comes to Fresno, which it should have, uh, which it should be in 2021. Um, and maybe some of those kids are going to take up theater when they get a little older and go to high school and be more receptive to the idea of going out and seeing live theater. As, as for your question, could it be a replacement? I don't know. I, I can't imagine only experiencing Hamilton through that TV version. But then again, I've, I, I saw the live version before. Um, the, the live version, again, just brought, it, it's an entirely different experience and a, and a higher level of connection and emotion and, and bonding with the audience and everything else. Um, so I don't know. I, don't, I think it could be just a replacement for now. Yeah, here's my concern. My concern is, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm nine years old. I watch Lin-Manuel Miranda, Leslie Odom, uh, you know, all David Diggs. I watch all the, you know, the guys, right? And the women, you know, that are the best, right? This is, this is like on Broadway. This is the best you're going to see. And then I go, no offense to the people in Fresno, but I go to a Fresno local theater performance and it's not Leslie Odom. It's not Lynn Manuel Miranda. It's it's people that are very good at what they do, but they're not these cosmic superstars. And so I I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, if it's like if you only have watched NFL games and you go to a high school football game, you know, like the high school football game, you need to go and watch that, right? You know, you support your whatever your local stuff. But like I wonder. You see what I'm saying? Like, oh, absolutely. And that's kind of where my, my question comes from, you know, if you only watch the, the super professionals, you know, is that what, what is, how do, how are people going to receive the local programs? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And that gets back to an actually a pretty philosophical discussion about the reproduction of art and how scared uh, people were in the 18th century, the 19th century, when these, and uh, early 20th century, when these techniques became available to reproduce professional art of many different kinds. We're talking um, either uh, poster reproductions of the great, you know, master paintings, uh, recordings of of great musical performances, um, and you know, and operas and things like that. And so people back then worried, well, if I can, if I can listen to the best pianist in the world, um, how, what's that going to do to Mr. Pianist down the street who is prop is not as good, um, but is playing live. I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I keep going back to the live part because I, I can tell you that I've seen shows at Good Company, musicals, that I thought were better than the Broadway version. Um, and that's because, well, probably a couple things. The intimacy of the performance, you're, you're closer, um, and just the emotional connection, and sometimes the direction. Um, there are other times that I've seen shows there and in some or whatever. Yeah. That don't, that don't come anywhere close to a, a professional production. But what I try to, at least in terms of my own viewing habits is I try to go in with a, like a reservoir of goodwill. <laughs> it's like, if it's a live performance, I've got so much goodwill in me when I, when that performance starts and it actually takes a lot you know, to turn that into a uh, not so good or bad performance. But I 
put so much of a premium on that live part that that's what I hope that people are, are drawn to. Am I going to see Lin-Manuel Miranda? No. Um, also, I'm not going to pay $500 for a ticket to see <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda. And, and so I guess part of it is being realistic, and then part of it is just teaching or encouraging people to appreciate that live part. Yeah. So um, I want to pivot a little bit to criticism, which is, you know, partly, partly your profession, right, is critical, critical, critical feedback. And, you know, I, I, um, I, I became obsessed with critics when I was in college, and I, I, um, a few of them that come to mind are Michael Bauer, who is, is actually a food critic. Yeah, and, for the Chronicle, right? For the Chronicle. And I, would, I loved his, his food criticism because it was always so highfalutin. It was, it was always, uh, there, there's something about a good review. Um, it's almost better than work itself, which is, you know, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I, I would read him regularly. I mean, Jonathan Gold, of course. Um, but then I would also read, uh, one of my favorites to read was reading uh, whatever movie A.O. Scott was reviewing. I just, I just loved and I, you know, because he he would he would dig in in a way that uh, would just make the the film experience better. And whenever whenever I loved a film, I would always go and say, "Oh, what what is what is A.O. Scott saying about this film or whatever?" And I do that now with with, with book reviews, and whatever it is. Um, but there's also another side to criticism. That's the kind of the Rotten Tomatoes side. The you know the kind of amateur critic. Um, and I, I kind of feel like the value of criticism might be deflated a bit because it's become such a, a public activity, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Rotten Tomatoes, whether it's on Yelp. Um, but, I, but I still think there's value for people that are really learned to review something and to, get, and to show us the way. And I, you know, speaking of A.O. Scott, one of his book, he wrote a book called uh, Better Living Through Criticism. Um, where he kind of makes a philosophical case for criticism as being a natural, important thing of a, a, a literate society, you know. And I, so I, I guess, how do you see yourself as a critic and what role you serve? But then also, um, do we need more critics? I mean, are we overloaded on them because of all these you know, platforms that basically convince people that they have enough knowledge to give reviews? I mean, I hate reading well, I reviews are the worst, right? Like when I'm okay. trying to buy a book and I'm like trying to look through the reviews to suss out, you know, what, you know, and they have these like, this person's a star reviewer or some, or some, I'm just like, what the hell do they even mean? Well, I'm, I'm curious about A.O. Scott and his, um, and what he had to say about it's, a, you know, a sign of basically civilization. Did he feel that that applied to professional critics or a, a small number of critics? Or was he saying that everyone should be a critic? Well, I mean, it's, it's complex, right? Like any, like many of his arguments, but it, it's, it's, it's both essentially, right? You know, that like, as soon as we encounter art, we want to have a verbal response to it, right? We want to, mm -hmm. but then there's this second tier of, of people that, really spend their lives to learn the craft and can speak, can, can put context for things and also help people to make choices of our limited time that we have uh, to, you know, read this book or that book, to watch this film or that film. Sure. And I've been led astray by many critics, uh, especially film critics and watching Cannes Film Festival awarded movies that were just dog shit that I should not have spent any time watching. I mean, I remember watching this four hour film with French subtitles, and by the end of it, I was so mad that I had spent the four hours, but someone thought it was a magnum opus, and so I said, right. okay, well, here's my, here's my Friday night uh, watching a, a subtitle film for four hours. So it, you know, it seems like it's a complicated word out, world out there in terms of criticism. So why don't you just start with uh, how you view yourself? Well, so I've, I thought a lot about this. Um, I've been a critic of some kind for 25 years, uh, seven years as a full-time movie critic for the BE, and which involved seeing between two and 300 movies a year, which, I'll, which I want to point out because that's not a natural thing to do. <laughs> so it's kind of, 
so there is a point when there were movie critics because of their very job title become so far removed from the general public that it, it can be problematic. Um, and it's also why after seven years, I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I, it, it, in a sense, almost kind of ruined the experience of going to the movies for me because my mind, my brain is so locked into this judgment mode. And I just end up watching movies in a different way than I think uh, most people do. You mentioned that um, you like certain critic, you know, you've really enjoyed reading some critics and saying Michael Bauer's reviews were as good, maybe as good as the food itself. Um, And I agree with that. And I think the ability to write a review that actually kind of captures, um, what would the word be like, the gestalt of the experience and do it in a way that's pithy, that's accurate, that synthesizes the plot, that does all the things that a review is supposed to hit, that is really tough. And there are times when I think that the reviews, the review does end up being better than the movie. You know, it's like, wow, I'm, I might not go see this movie, but I really am glad I spent time uh, watching that review. So yes, reviews are difficult. It's, what's easy is just to say, oh, this movie was good, or this was bad, or I liked it, or I didn't like it, which is essentially what a lot of internet reviews are about. Um, the other point kind of speaks to something that I spent a lot of time talking to my college journalism students about, which is this idea that we have, we have moved or are moving from this model in which our news consumption is curated by uh, professional journalists who spend their, spend their day at the job thinking about, you know, what's, what stories should we write about, what stories should we present. Um, we're moving from that curated model to more of the social media, just whatever goes viral model. And the thing that you miss, that you lose with that curated view, just like with, and you can apply this to movie reviews as well, is a sense of consistency, is a sense of of context, um, a sense of appreciation for like the art of filmmaking. There, there, there are a lot of com- components that go into that. But I, I find now that a lot of the, um, and I, I don't like to use the word amateur, but the voluntary movie reviews or the ones that just pop up online, they just aren't worth my time because they're not very well written. And I'm just not that, I, I don't know the person, so I don't know if I can trust them. And it just becomes a lot of noise. And so I think that's, what, that's what's happened with um, movie reviews in particular, is that the studios realize, ah, we can grab pull quotes or whatever to put on the poster from anybody now. Um, and we've taken those reviews and kind of, turn them into statistics. So that's where you get, oh, this is a fresh because it got more than, you know, like 60% green or rotten or whatever. So it becomes more about the numbers. And I just don't think that's as helpful. Yeah, the mob is not very good at uh, fine criticism. The mob is is good at throwing tomatoes, which is, which is I mean, there there's something to be said for, you know, mass appeal, you know, I mean, you, you have to work hard. Um, so I, I, I don't want to necessarily, you know, I, sometimes I have this tendency to want to shit on things because they're popular. And that's, that's not what I'm trying to do by any means. I think more of it is that what, for me, the biggest part is the context, what you're talking about. Like, I don't know where this, like, I, I want someone to show me the vista, right? And I want someone to take me through and and tell me why this cinematography is breaking new bounds so I can appreciate it, you know? And I, I mean, maybe I don't need that for Jumanji too, but you know, right, right. for other films, I do need that. And, and 
I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, good art is often difficult art. You know, when I listen to, for example, I could listen to the new Fleet Foxes album and it would just be soothing and I would know kind of what they're doing. I know when the chorus is coming. Or I can listen to that John Adams opera that came out a few months ago that is really <laughs> tough, a tough slog. Uh, but, you know, there, there's so much depth there. And so I think, I think a lot of us are, there, a lot of our society has been comfortable with baby food for a long time. And, <laughs> you know, and I think the critic, unfortunately, is, is kind of pegged as an elitist, but what they're actually trying to do is bring people into this higher order of art. Right. Misconception. Um, I mean, also I'll give you an example of something I'm watching right now. So Charlie Kaufman, director, being John Malkovich, Eternal Spotlight, the whatever mind, I always got that title mixed up. He's got this new movie out called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And it, it's actually a Netflix, so I, it's actually a Netflix movie. And so I, I read a review of it which is what pointed me to watch it. So I did use it as a consumer um, device in a sense. I will say I very rarely read a review before I watch something. I'll scan the review. I'll figure out what the, the premise is. Then I go back and read the review after, after I watch it. But it was important in this review <clears throat> to give me context to remind me who Charlie Kaufman is and what he does. Why is it so bizarre? And what are some of the ways that he makes this bizarreness work? If I had watched this movie and what it ended up doing was it helped me at, even as I was in the movie, appreciate it more without giving anything away. And so I, I think that's like kind of the best of both worlds. It's a, it was a beautifully written review by the way, I, I can't remember if it was A.O. Scott who wrote it, but it was beautifully written and kind of stood on its own as almost a work of art. And then it pointed me to this other work of art and kind of made that experience speak to me. And so I think that's an example of what a really well-written review can do. If I used the, um, the internet mob <laughs> model, um, I'm sure it got really rotten reviews because <laughs> it's a really weird movie. But I don't know. I guess I guess um, I was satisfied yeah. by, the, by the experience, by the transaction. And it doesn't necessarily have to be esoteric films. I mean, one of my, I mean, this, this is turning into an A.O. Scott fanboy podcast, and I'm not trying to make it that way, but it, it's, it's fresh on my mind. Um, having just finished that book that he wrote, um, I, more than any films that he reviewed, my favorite uh, reviews of his to read were about Pixar films. He was, he's mm -hmm. the biggest Pixar fan in the world. And um, listening to him review Wally or reading his review of Wally was one of my favorite things he ever wrote. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be about high culture, but what it is is like bring you into a, beyond the point of just passive consumption um, to a place of engaging with the world. And so that's, that's, that's what I value. And I, uh, I do want to close up now with talking, talking about passive consumption, uh, talking about active consumption, which is reading. Um, are there some book recommendations that you have um, for people about anything that you're reading necessarily? I mean, maybe about art and music, but uh, really anything. So, I'm always reading so many things, um, but I just finished this amazing book of short stories. It's called Exhalations. Oh yes, yes, yes. By Ted Chang. Have, did, have you read that? Or have you? I, the the story in there about the time traveling. I mean, the, uh, the whole collection is wonderful. But but yeah, I mean, by far, if if you haven't read this book, just stop just hit the pause button and just, just order, you know, so they have that buy now button on Amazon. You just hit that button yeah, and, and you get it. And, and speaking in defensive critics, I picked that book solely because it was on the New York times list of like top 100 books of, of the year. Um, because I don't have time to like, there's so many hundreds, thousands, millions, <laughs> tens of thousands of books published. Yeah. So I am so glad 
for me, it was the story about the, um, the artificial intelligence, like pet or child. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it gets into this idea of, is it possible to bond with something that is just like a digital creature? I thought it was incredibly moving. I, I but even, even more than the ideas behind his stories, I just love his writing style. I think he's a wonderful, beautiful writer. So that was like a real find for me. You know, and it's funny to, to a little bit, you know, talking about context, it's hilarious to me that his, his primary job is actually not fiction writing, but he writes uh, manuals for using like different technology products. And, really? And does fiction in his, in his, in his spare time. <laughs> um, wow. So the one of the things you learn in reading reviews of books, and I, I listen yeah. to uh, if you know a uh, recommendation for a podcast I love that I listen to weekly is the New York Times Book Review podcast. It is mm. by far my favorite podcast of all time. Uh, because I'll have to check that out because I listen. I get to you know I, I get the context. I get to hear about what's interesting in the world, and at the very end. Uh, the New York Times book critics talk about what they're reading in their own personal time. And so that's always fascinating to me too, is you know, I'm, I'm always one very keen on recommendations. And so I, hmm. I there's a few places that I get them. Uh, what, another great place since we're on this topic is um, I, damn, we're just talking about the New York Times all day. Well, it is what it is. They yes. have this great thing and others, other journalistic outlets do this too, but they do it better than anyone. It's called by the book where it's just different writers and authors and thinkers that, uh, they, and they do it weekly where they just ask them what's on their bookshelves, what they're, what they're mm. reading, uh, who they would invite to a literary dinner over at their house. So this is, yeah, we're getting, we're getting deep in the weeds of nerdiness here, but oh, uh, yeah. that's, that's what you, that's what you got to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once, so, um, um, and then the other one I would bring up and I just, I don't know why I did this to myself, but I, I read uh, Jared Diamond's book. Uh, it's called Collapse, How Societies Fall, um, which as it sounds, or, you know, it, it, it was pretty depressing, but not totally, but it, it made me decide that I am going to go to Easter Island. That's where I want to go. It's, it's like one of the most, uh, most isolated places on earth, but because he writes about how basically that society collapsed because they cut all their trees down. You know, and then the question is, what did that Easter Islander who actually was cutting that very last tree <laughs> down, what went through his head, you know? Um, but really sobering book, but also I, I think um, just a really, a really great look at uh, sort of the environmental catastrophe that's unfolding around us and we don't really even think about it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on and definitely if there's a message here, you know, uh, use your critics as a way to fast forward through the difficulty of when you walk into a Barnes and Noble or you, you know, you're trying to decide what to do with your weekend. The critics are there to help you ultimately. Um, and some of them can be snobby assholes. That is perfectly normal. It's a side, side effect of the job, mm -hmm. but, but um, they're snobby assholes that want to help you which is the best kind of a snobby asshole. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, anyway. Can I, I, can I just throw in like one shout out for my website? Oh, yeah. So, oh, absolutely. I was going to finish okay. that. Where, where, oh, okay. Yeah. Where do people find your work and what are some projects you're working on? Uh, so uh, my website is MonroeReview.com. That's M-U-N-R-O Review.com. Uh, it's been up since 2017. It has almost a thousand posts about the uh, – greater Fresno art scene. And I write about theater, classical music, visual arts, all that, all that good stuff. Um, of course, unfortunately, in the last few months, I've been writing a lot about how local arts organizations are coping uh, with the pandemic. But I think I still have managed to find some, some stories that stand out there that it's not all totally depressing. <laughs> Um, and also just about how the ways that artists have uh, been coping and finding new ways to present their work, you know, whether it's online, whether it's a drive-by art gallery, you know, that kind of thing. So um, lots to read.
Yeah, and su and support uh, support you, and you know, I mean, uh, I think we're so used to, you know, free podcasts, free free journalism, free whatever mm -hmm. that uh, you know, when someone says, "Oh, you need support," uh, you know, as if writing is not work, and as if you know, doing interviews is not work. You know, uh, I I think, you know, you got to support the things you want to see in the world and you want the world to become. And so um, support Donald's work. Um, there's, there's a support button there. If you like his writing, then support him um, because that's that's what enables us to do this stuff is, is by support. You know, obviously I, you know, that is your profession. I'm a part-timey guy, um, but uh, I, you know, if, I was writing the work that you were writing. I would need I would need my full eight hours a day at least um, because it's you know it's thoughtful thoughtful writing. I've read quite a few of your articles and I appreciate the work you do and especially you know as our Fresno Bee continues to you know uh, <laughs> I don't want to say I don't want to say anything negative but you know I there are certain types of articles that I see more commonly on that site and art art and uh, art and music reviews are not uh, not on that list so. Uh, we need to support our journalism because, uh, you know, we're in the, you know, uh, I have a friend who has worked at the Washington Post for a long time and he was trying to get me one of those uh, Democracy Dies in Darkness uh, shirts. He wasn't able to get me one, but oh. I, I, I love the motto. I love the motto. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially local journalism needs more support than ever. All those big boys on the coast, they're fine. They've got a bunch of rich old liberals that will keep funding them forever. Uh, but local journalism is something that, uh, you know, you have to be intentional about supporting. So uh, that's my that's my closing pitch, I guess. Um, thanks, Donald, for coming on to talk to me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been great. I've, I've had a great time. If you've listened this far into the podcast, you really like what we're doing here. Please consider supporting us either by making a financial contribution to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash fresnosbest, or by leaving us a rating and review. Both of those go a long way to help the sustainability of this podcast. Until next time.